Heavenly Father, as we read your word today, we ask that you'd help us to understand what you would have us know, and that in your strength, we would see you more clearly and live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if you were to have spent a little bit of time in our household a few years ago, it wouldn't have been long before you would have heard the phrase, what do you say? Uh, Typically that would be followed by a thank you delivered with varying degrees of sincerity. Uh, Fiona might say that if you spent time in a household today, you might still hear that phrase uh, as you grapple with older children and perhaps husbands too. Uh, Perhaps this is an example of the gratitude gap that American psychologists have described. Uh, They say that about uh, 90% of us, most of us feel gratitude for things, but only about half of us ever express that gratitude. Um, (coughs) For those of you that um, that think this is just down to good manners and uh, honed uh, through years of uh, careful parenting, uh, scientists would have us believe that in fact whether we're thankful or not is something to do with our genetic makeup. Uh, They've shown that certain genes, uh, depending on which version you have, make us more likely or less likely to express our gratitude. Well, whether we find it easy or difficult to say thank you or not, uh, I guess uh, depends on all sorts of factors. But ultimately, our thankfulness is a response to when our needs are met by someone else. And I guess we all have that experience of knowing that the greater our need and the greater the cost to the person that meets that need, uh, the more thankful we will be. And whilst we could use a number of uh, words to describe the theme of our psalm today, I'm going to settle on thanksgiving, not because I'm particularly clever, uh, because that's what the psalmist tells us this psalm is for. Look down, Psalm 100, a psalm, a psalm for giving grateful praise. Other translations translate this as a psalm for giving thanks or thanks offerings. And my hope is that as we look at this passage today, as we hear the psalmist call to be thankful, we will consider the original readers, the people of Israel, their needs, and the reason the psalmist gives them to be thankful. And in turn, I hope that will help us to understand what it has to teach us and why this is a command for us too. So I wonder, as Gussie read uh, those opening uh, words of the psalm, or perhaps as we read them at the beginning, uh, as Corin opened the service, we were struck uh, by the force of the psalmist's command. Shout for joy to the Lord. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. I did toy with the idea of asking everyone to to stand up and shout for joy to the Lord. I wasn't quite sure what response I'd get early on a Sunday morning. When did you last shout for joy? Perhaps it was at uh, two minutes uh, past eight on the 11th of uh, July as Luke Shaw met Kieran Trippier's cross to put England 1-0 up in the European uh, Championship finals. JP might tell me it came about two and a half hours later as Italy won on penalties. Perhaps the success of recent exam results led to an exclamation of delight when your joy is the love of your life asks you to marry them. But the psalmist is clear that he thinks the reader has much to be thankful to God for. And he sets out the reasons why the reader should be thankful. And the first one that we're given is because of the nature of the one we're to be thankful to, the Lord. 
written there several times in this psalm, always in capitals. Know that Yahweh, the Lord, is God. Give thanks to the Lord because he's God. Now, superficially, it could sound as if we're saying, know that God is God. But as we've seen in recent weeks, when we see the word Lord in capitals in our Bibles, we're addressing God by his personal name, Yahweh. Now, in the past, your name might tell me something about you. The local blacksmith's family were the Smiths. Uh, the brown-haired families down the road were the Browns. The shorts were vertically challenged. And sadly, the Belchers were not great burpers, but instead had fair and lovely faces. Which just goes to show that as belching no longer conjures up the picture of someone with a fair and lovely face, so too characteristics that may have once led to a family name may not be appropriate forever. But in contrast, Yahweh is God's name for himself. It speaks of his character, his sovereignty, his unchanging nature. Not only is Yahweh Israel's God, a God amongst many, perhaps, as the nations around them may have said, but he is the God who has always been and always will be. To know this God alone would be reason to worship him with joyful song and acts of service. But the psalmist also reminds the reader, uh, Israel, that they are God's people, made by him. Now, whilst it's certainly true that God is the creator of all people, to use his name Yahweh is to use his covenant name. It's a reminder to Israel of their status as God's chosen people, that they belong to him, that they live in his pasture. He is their God, and they are his people. And if this idea sounds familiar to us, it certainly would to the original readers. It echoes God's covenants with the people of Israel that are at the very heart of the Old Testament. In particular, I think the reader couldn't have helped but returned to Israel's rescue from Egypt. God first uses his name Yahweh when he appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he tells Moses to go and tell the people that, uh, who are captive in Egypt that he will rescue them and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. Having rescued Israel from Pharaoh's hand, God restates his promise that he is their God and they are his people. On the face of it, if the psalmist stops there at verse 3, there would be plenty to give thanks for as they wandered in awe at Yahweh. By his very nature, God is to be worshipped. Um, uh, but he could have, uh, but that, that he should have chosen to make them his personal people, people was something else again. That he had delivered them from Egypt and brought them into the land of Canaan and triumphed over their enemies were reasons enough to come before him with thanks and praise. But perhaps for the careful reader, this reminder of their status as God's covenant people may have posed some slightly difficult questions. After all, the covenant promise after rescue from Egypt came, Egypt came with some conditions. God had rescued them. He had done that for them. But in order to go on enjoying his blessings, they would need to submit to his good rule. The law given to Moses was intended for them to enjoy those blessings and for God to live amongst them, first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And yet the reader of this psalm 
couldn't have helped but been aware that ever since their rescue from Egypt, Israel had repeatedly rejected God. God repeatedly warns them about their rejection of his rule. He says it will lead to judgment, and we see examples of this throughout their history. But Israel has again and again failed to heed this warning. Perhaps believing that the mercy he has shown them as his people would always save them. By the beginning of the 6th century, all of Israel had been conquered, and some had now been carried off into Babylon. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but it is part part of book four of the five books of Psalms. And some commentators suggest that book four is a response to the crisis of exile that is articulated in uh, book three of the Psalms. But either way, the discerning reader, when confronted with a holy and just God, uh, and would ask the question, how will he deal with a people not seemingly listening to his loving warning? But note how that doesn't put the psalmist off. He keeps going, urging the reader again to draw near to God with thanksgiving and praise. Why? For Yahweh the Lord is good. There in verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. This second truth is essential for the reader to hear. In the 17th century, in his book, Leviathan, Thomas Hobbes sets out his idea of the social contract. That is to say, as citizens, we willingly give up some of our freedom to authority in exchange for security and uh, protection. And I guess on one level, all of us buy into this idea to some degree or another. But fundamentals of the contract is that the authorities deliver what they have promised that they're good and that they want the best for us. Otherwise, we've just given up our freedom for nothing. It's perhaps no surprise that in modern politics, we've opted for democratic rule, so that if we don't like uh, those that we put in authority over us, we get the chance every four or five years to change them. But the psalmist tells uh, the reader that not only is Yahweh God, but he is good. He's good, and his love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. As we've touched on already, Israel's history is a continuous cycle of rejecting God's rule, facing his judgment, repenting, and then receiving mercy and blessing. Again and again, Israel has the opportunity to start afresh and submit to Yahweh's rule once again. But again and again, they fail to live in obedience to him. It's easy, perhaps, for us to look back and throw our hands up in despair at Israel's repeated failures. But this is the human story. It's our story. It's the story from the beginning of time. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have everything they could want. And yet the lie of the serpent is that perhaps God is not really good. Perhaps he's holding something back. And it's not the same true for us also. Can we not name at least one area of our lives where we're really struggling, where we know what we ought to do, we know what God wants us to do, but we just end up justifying that perhaps there's something good that God is holding back from us. That's the reason why we give into temptation. We soon realize the foolishness of our decisions, and yet despite our best efforts, we seem to repeat the same cycle again and again. 
And even when I do seem to make progress in one area, another area of disobedience in my life just seems to crop up as quickly uh, <clears throat> as, uh, as the other one disappears. The more we look at who God is and see him as holy and just, wonderful as that is, as reason as that is to give thanks to God, we can't help but see more clearly who we are. And the serpent's question to us now is how could this God possibly still want you? Well, the answer is there in verse 5. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. Now, on first glance, this sentence may induce some vague sense of comfort and warmth, but for the Israelite reader, they would have realized that they've seen these words before. In Jeremiah 33, 11, as Jeremiah sits in prison with the Israelites in exile in Babylon, God says, there will be heard once more voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, for his love endures forever. What does the psalmist say in verse 5? Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. But what does this mean? The phrase is underpinned by what we find a few chapters earlier in Jeremiah, and it's the reason that the psalmist is certain that we have great grounds for thankfulness. If you want, you can turn, that to, uh, you turn to that, that reference in Jeremiah 31. I'll read it. Uh, we're going to read verses 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Let there be no doubt, Israel, God says, that you cannot rescue yourselves. God could have forsaken Israel. He had led her out of Egypt. He'd made a covenant with her, only for her to break it. After all God had done for them, after being a husband to her, they continually ran after other gods, pale imitations of Yahweh, and they did it again and again and again. What would you do in God's position? Well, Yahweh, God, takes her back. And this time he makes a new covenant, a promise that will not depend on them. Instead, he will do for them what they could never do. He will change what they couldn't change. He will change their hearts and their minds, and they will know him. No wonder the psalmist calls us to be thankful and calls us to shout with joy and worship to Yahweh. As Israel looked at God in all his perfection, having felt him again and again, and they grasped that he was good, 
and what he had done for them, uh, despite the, that their inability to respond. How could they not fail but worship? The Israelites would see at least some change in their circumstances. The exile would end, they would return to Israel, the temple was rebuilt, and presumably they would have sung this psalm as they went up to the temple to give their thank offerings. As they approached Jerusalem and they saw that mighty uh, temple, they would have passed through the gates, passed into the outer court, onwards into the inner court. No doubt there would have been a great sense of occasion and that physical reality of drawing closer to God would have helped them offer the praise and thanksgiving the psalmist asked for. But of course the inner court was as far as the average Israelite could go. If you're a priest, you might be able to go a little bit further, edging towards the Holy of Holies. But that lay beyond the curtain where only one man, the high priest, could enter, and even then, just once a year. It doesn't quite feel like the promise of Jeremiah 33, 34, that all will know that the Lord, uh, uh, that know him personally. That, that reality hasn't quite come. And yet they shouted for joy and entered with thanksgiving and praised and worshipped their good and faithful God. So then how much more for us as we worship and praise God, looking back at this psalm in light of the establishment of the new covenant? We spent most of our time considering that the original readers of this psalm were Israelites living in light of the promises that God had made to their fathers of old. But perhaps you notice that we skipped past uh, that important little phrase in Psalm 100, uh, in, in the first verse. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Yes, a promise for Israel, a promise of old, but now that call goes beyond the borders of Israel. The inv invitation to come and know Yahweh the good God is for all the earth, for all that would come. But we're still left with how Yahweh will do what he's promised. In John 10, verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life, for the sheep. How does this good God rescue a people that cannot save themselves? Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the good God who lays down his life for his sheep. As his body is broken on the cross and his blood shed, the new covenant is established. God himself deals with our sin, making possible what is impossible for us. So will we take up the psalmist's invitation to come and give thanks to this good God? We do that when we come to Jesus in humility, acknowledging that we're in desperate need for him to do what we cannot do for, him, uh, for ourselves. By trusting that through his death on the cross, all our sins are forgiven, and he will start to change our hearts and our minds, ready for the day when he will come again. If you've not yet come to Jesus as Lord, but you recognize your need, we would love to help you explore that a bit more. 
Um, if you would like some help in doing that, please do come and find me or Corinne uh, or someone else afterwards. It may be that you're not quite ready to submit to him as God. You may have all sorts of questions, but don't put this off to another day. Don't do what Israel did and assume it will all be okay in the end. We'd love to help you work through some of those questions, and there are a range of ways in which we can do that. But for most of us, I guess we are living here in the light of these promises. And I hope this psalm is a great reminder for all of us as to who the God that we worship is and what he has done for us. If so, will you thank him with shouts of joy and give him joyful songs and worship him and praise him? If that comes easily to you, then praise the Lord. Keep on doing what you're doing and share and encourage those of us who perhaps don't always find it easy. And I hope it goes without saying that this won't always be easy. I hope we've seen that the command to shout for joy and be thankful, just like our salvation, is not something that we can do in our own strength. And we can be confident that we won't be able to do it fully until that great day when Jesus comes again. And there are all sorts of reasons why we may not always feel joyful. We may not feel like giving thanks. And the Bible doesn't shy away from the trials that will come our way, often precisely because we are following this good God. So if that's you, please do share that burden with God. Be assured of his love for you and his desire that you experience the joy of knowing him. Perhaps if you can, share it with someone else. We are his people. We're a family. We're here to care for one another. But I'm also conscious that maybe there are some like me who what they really need to be reminded of today and every day is the extent of our need and the cost that God bore <coughs> to meet that need for us. In North London, we're a long way from physical exile. We're successful, perhaps. We're wealthy. We're busy. We have so many interests competing for our attention. If so, please don't let the good news of what God has done for us grow faint, lest we risk falling back into our pattern of ever so slowly forgetting how great our need is and how great what God has done for us is. If so, please keep coming back to the Bible. The warnings are writ large throughout its pages, and as we read and study it and pray, we can be confident that we will know our good God um, <clears throat> more and more such that we cannot help but experience the joy of knowing him. Let's pray. Father God, as we stand before you today, as we see you for who you are, uh, we cannot take in uh, your holiness and your goodness, and that despite our rebellion and our rejection of you, you would die so that we may know you and enjoy um, the joy and peace that comes um, from relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and thanks, that we would delight to praise you and worship, and that that would be evident for all of those around us to see. We ask this in your name, not in our strength, but yours, and for your glory. Amen.